Good morning, West Shore. It is good to worship with you this morning, even though we're not present with each other. We're glad you're in your homes worshiping the Lord together today. Uh, as Dan welcomed you, let me welcome you as well. My name is Trent Thompson, the senior pastor at West Shore. And if it is your first time with us, we are so glad that you're here. If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 18. We have been in a series in the Gospel of John. We're continuing in that today. And let me, uh, as you're turning there, let me also just re-emphasize what Dan said about heading to the website this week, westshorefree.org slash seek the good. So you can uh, see more about the serving opportunities he was talking about at some of our local area food banks. We would love for you to engage with those opportunities. We've been listening sort of really long and hard over the last couple of weeks and asking God, where would you have a serve? How can we impact our community most effectively, most faithfully? And church family, can I just say what an opportunity we have in this season to put uh, works to the faith that we proclaim. And so I just want to encourage you. Uh, we are not a people, as we just sang, we're not a people who are conquered by fear. We don't have a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Uh, but we have a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so we're reminded of that in what we just sang. Would love for you to have the opportunity to serve our community. So more things to come in terms of how we'll serve, how God will give us opportunity, but we're gonna seize every one of those to proclaim the goodness of Jesus in the midst of a hard time. So, all right, so hopefully you have found John chapter 18. We're gonna pick up there. As we look at John chapter 18, we are entering into the trials of Jesus. Uh, and next week we'll turn and we'll look at the crucifixion of Jesus. And then on Easter, we will come together and we'll celebrate the resurrection. So we find ourselves in John chapter 18 today. And as I was reading this passage and studying it, I was thinking about uh, NASA. I like space exploration. I don't know if you do. I can't claim to be like a buff on it, but I love sort of space, expira space exploration stories. And I was thinking about the story of Apollo 13. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie or not. Uh, some of you may not be familiar with it. If you're not, let me just kind of catch you up to speed. Apollo 13 obviously was a movie based on real events. And if it's unfamiliar to you, it would have been NASA's third lunar landing mission. So Apollo 11 was the first lunar landing mission. So Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and then Apollo 12 also landed on the moon. And then Apollo 13 was gonna be the third lunar landing mission, but an oxygen tank exploded as they were stirring the oxygen tanks in the spacecraft, which caused to the mission having to be aborted. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know that it's based on uh, those real life dangerous events and what it took to get the crew of Apollo 13 back to earth, back home and all the challenges and dangers that were faced in that. Now, the story is compelling in and of itself. It has a happy ending, sort of all's, all's well that ends well. But I think what really draws me to the story is as I watch the movie is the steady handed leadership of Gene Krantz, who is played by uh, Ed Harris in the movie. Have y'all have y'all seen this? So I love Ed Harris's portrayal of that. Now, by all accounts, this isn't just a movie portrayal of a good leader, but Gene Krantz is one of the most revered and respected leaders in NASA's history as a flight director. And in the movie, you see Gene again and again at moments of turmoil and trial when everything's kind of up in the air and they're not sure what to do. He leads his team well through dealing with the challenges in front of them. So there's this scene in the movie that every time I watch it, I get, I get goosebumps. 
There's a scene in the movie where Kranz overhears two NASA directors discussing the numerous possible disasters that could happen upon reentry for the astronauts. Now the heat shield might fail. Perhaps the, the navigational system is not gonna work and they're gonna bounce right off the atmosphere. And so there's these mounting fears and one of them concludes the conversation by saying, this could be the worst disaster NASA has ever experienced. And Kranz overhearing them turns and in a snap says, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. Every time I watch that, I think that's great leadership. That's great leadership in the face of adversity and difficulty to point them to what is possible and what he believes will happen and to summon up courage to believe that they will meet the challenge in front of them. And I thought about that as we come to John 18 today, because in times of trouble, we always want great leadership with us. We want leadership that reminds us what is possible, points us in the right direction, fills us with courage rather than fear. And in turning to John 18, we come to the moment of greatest trouble in Jesus's life. But as we come to it, John does something really interesting. Now, if you look at the gospels, one of the things I'll encourage you to do one of the things I'll encourage you to do is as you think about the trial of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, you know, in the Bible, we have these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they tell the story of Jesus's life. And when we get to this moment in Jesus's life, each one of those gospel writers emphasizes something a little different. So they, they're all telling the same story, but they want you to get a little something different so that you really get the fullest essence of Jesus's trials and crucifixion and resurrection only when you read all four gospel stories and see what Matthew emphasizes and what he wants you to sort of understand and, and, and be left with as you leave these trials. And the same thing for Mark and Luke and John. Now, as we come to John's story, he does something that I think is really interesting and I find it really helpful given the place we find ourselves in our world currently. Now, I imagine that some of you listening today may be coming to church for the first time or back to church for the first time in a long time. You know, I say you're in the right place. Perhaps you're here because in this time of global trouble, you are wondering if God is real, if he represents the kind of being that you can turn to in trial, who can be trusted, who can lead you effectively and well. If he's the kind of authority that we all crave and want in moments of trial, in our lives, then I think he's got a gift for you today because in John chapter 18, what John is gonna do, while Matthew and Mark and Luke are gonna emphasize Jesus' submission to the Father as the perfect son and how he is willing to obey in spite of the great difficulty. And then they're really gonna see the humanity of Jesus in the difficulty of the cross and the trials. Well, that's what Matthew, Mark and Luke do. See, John still has this thing bouncing around in his mind. If you've been through the whole series of John with us, you might remember that in John chapter one, John introduces Jesus differently than all the other gospel writers. They all tell the birth narrative. They talk about how Jesus came into the world, more or less, particularly Matthew and Luke. And they, they kind of look to Jesus in the early days of his life when he's first being born. But John doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. John begins with a statement about the divinity of Jesus when he says that Jesus is the word of God who became flesh. 
And all throughout John's gospel, he returns that, that, that idea again and again. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Yes, he's fully human, but John's emphasis again and again is on the authority and the power of Jesus. And that's where John is gonna go again, because you see, he's never got that too far in his, away from his mind as he's writing his gospel story. And so as he comes to the trials of Jesus, it probably should be no surprise that what he does is he emphasizes not the submission of Jesus as the perfect son, but the authority of Jesus as the divine king. That he's going to show us the kind of king that we have when we have Jesus. And that's gonna be our emphasis today. We're gonna just try and ask that question. What kind of king is Jesus? If we all need a good king, a good leader, a good authority in our lives in moments of trial and trouble, is Jesus that kind of king? Probably no surprise, our answer here is yes, but I want you to see how John paints that picture for you. He wants you to see some very specific things about the kind of king that Jesus is. So we're gonna see three things as we look at John 18. The first we're gonna see is that Jesus is the kind of king who is never a victim. And the second thing we're gonna see is not only is he the kind of king who's never a victim, he's also the kind of king who protects his own. And then last, we're gonna see, not only does he protect his own, but that Jesus is the kind of king who has come to bear witness to the truth. Now that's gonna take a little explaining or unpacking, but I want you to, to see those three things. So that's sort of our three moves today. So follow with me if you will. Look at John chapter 18, beginning of verse one. Let's read the first 11 verses and we'll take our first two points from this text. So in John 18, beginning in verse one, we see this. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, and then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me, of those who you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me. All right, so let's pause right there. So at first glance, as you read this scene, what should be really evident is it's, an, it's a really unlikely scene. It's not what we would expect as we come to the garden. And again, in Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts, we don't find this moment where the soldiers show up and they fall backwards because Jesus speaks a few words. We find more emphasis in the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying and saying to the father, not my will, but your will, and really wrestling with the agony of having the sin of the world placed upon his shoulders. 
But John paints a picture of a triumphant king in the garden. So just a couple of things that are unusual about this moment, the way John recalls it for us. The first is that Judas and the Jewish leaders have procured a Roman cohort to join them. You saw that there when it talked about a cohort of soldiers. So in other words, Rome is already in on this deal. It's not just a bunch of Jewish authorities who have come together and are going to go try and arrest Jesus. They have professional soldiers with them, a large number of them. So we see that the the odds are truly lopsided, makes Peter's actions even more ridiculous when we see him pulling out a sword as if he's going to be able to conquer a whole portion of a cohort of soldiers. And yet in the moment that they come into the garden, rather than shrinking back as you might expect in light of the situation and the darkness in the mist late at night, Jesus uh, moves close up to the soldiers. He paces right towards them, almost to the entrance of the garden gate and takes command of the situation immediately. Who is it that you seek? And they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. Now there's debate among the commentators whether Jesus is making a divine claim when he says, I am he. It's the Greek phrase, ego me," which we've seen throughout the gospel of John is a way that God has identified himself. The name that God has used referring to himself. And commentators are a little divided here over whether Jesus is essentially taking the divine name and saying, that's me. I'm divine or whether he's simply answering their question. But either way, something about his presence, whether it's a divine claim that he's making in his very words, or whether it's simply just the command he shows in the midst of a situation where everyone would be afraid and shrinking back, something causes them to lose their balance, to stumble over backwards and to fall down. I find this to be one of the most comical moments in the entire gospel because they, he asks them again, who do you seek? And they have to repeat their, well, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is who we seek. And so I told you that I am he. Now here's why John paints this picture for us. Because what John wants you and I to see is that Jesus is not a victim in this moment. Anyone else in this moment would be a victim of injustice. And at a human level, Jesus no doubt is a victim of injustice. The trials that are about to take place uh, are grossly unjust. They don't satisfy the requirements in the law for the way a trial is supposed to be held according to Jewish tradition and and legal precedent. And yet at the same, so at the human level, Jesus certainly is a victim, but that's not ultimately true of Jesus. He's not a king who is a victim. He's a king who is reigning and ruling even in the moment that he's giving up his life and that others are coming to take that life. He's not a victim, but he, along with the father, is the one divinely dictating and directing the events that are unfolding. Now, that's somewhat straightforward as you read this story. It's it's remarkable, the authority with which Jesus moves into this moment. But here's the thing. Why does that matter? I mean, why does it matter that John wants us to see a divine king who's controlling the events that are taking place rather than merely a human who is cowed in the difficulty of the moment and being sort of taken hostage or taking prisoner? Why does John want us to see that? Why does it matter? Well, here's why. It matters because it tells us the cross of Jesus is not something that happened to Jesus, but something that happened because of Jesus. You know, what I mean by that is that the cross of Jesus was not something that he was taken up towards without his, without his willingness, but rather that the cross of Jesus was something that he not only willingly went to, but divinely directed his going to, the manner in which it would happen, the timing in which it would happen in connection with the Father. 
Because here's the thing, if Jesus were truly a victim here without power or control, then it would be reasonable to think that our claims of his being the king, I mean, keep in mind as Christians, we don't claim that Jesus is a king. We claim that he is the king, the king above all other kings. And that claim could probably rightly be brought into question if we see Jesus as a victim who can be just like so many earthly kings before and after him taken off his throne by an angry mob. But that's not who Jesus is. And so our claims that he is the king are emboldened by the fact that in this story, he's no victim, but rather the one directing the events that are transpiring. Now, more than that, It tells us this, it tells us that our claim that the cross is where we can turn again and again to understand how to think about the circumstances of our life is valid. Now, here's what I mean by that. We say all the time here at church that if you want to think about your life and the purpose of it and the meaning of it and how to make decisions throughout your life, you need to think through the lens of the cross. In other words, for us, the cross dictates the values and the ethics and the mission, the very purpose of our lives. We look to it for an understanding of how to live. And if the cross, if the cross is that kind of a thing. If we continue to say, hey, if you don't know what to do, think about what the cross represents and live in light of the values and the ethic of the cross and you can't go wrong. Why can we have confidence that the cross is this dictator to us of the way we should live? Here's why. You see, if Jesus went to the cross as a victim, if he went to the cross sort of unwittingly or unwillingly, then what that tells us is the cross is somewhat accidental. But if he goes on purpose and intentionally, and he, he goes to the cross by his own design, then what it tells us is the only reason Jesus would do that is if the cross had immense value. You don't lay down your life for something of little value. You only lay down your life and, and drive the course of your life in that direction if there is immense value in the thing to which you are driving. Does, does that make sense? And so... Jesus is moving towards the cross because that has immense value, which reminds us that we're not wrong to point to the cross again and again. Never get tired of pointing to the cross. Please, church, family, don't get tired of returning to the cross again and again and again. Let's just think about that for a moment. I mean, we derive our understanding of what is good and beautiful and true from the cross. We know if something is good, if it bears the marks of the cross, and if it doesn't, it's not good. We, we discern beauty, as ironic as this is, from an, an article of death and mayhem, something like the cross, an article of great sacrifice, we derive our understanding of what's truly beautiful. We don't agree with what the world says beauty really looks like. We think beauty looks like the self-sacrificial love of the cross. And that's how we measure beauty. We derive what is true or understanding what is true from the cross because it's Jesus' ultimate expression of his true purpose. We consider what it means to be a friend through the cross, don't we? If we want to know what it means to be a true friend, and this is an important season to think about friendship. What does it mean to be a friend in a season like this one? If we think about friendship, we think about it through the lens of the cross. We manage our money according to the sacrificial ethic of the cross. Think about 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where it says that Jesus became poor for us. He who had immense wealth entered poverty for us so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And of course he's speaking spiritual wealth there. But Paul in writing that is arguing, the reason you handle your money the way that you do is because of the cross. It's because of the poverty that Jesus embraced in the cross, the poverty of personhood, the poverty of sacrificing his life. 
and laying it down. So we think about our money through the lens of the cross. We choose our spouse guided by the mission of the cross. We choose a spouse based upon who will help us accomplish the work that God has called us to do in this life. Who wants to join us in that work? And we run hard after him. And when we look next to us and see someone running hard after him as well, we say, perhaps this could be the partner. We respond in a crisis like the one we're in through the lens of sacrifice given to us by the cross. So I hope you see what I mean when I say the importance of the cross for us cannot be overstated. And the fact that Jesus is no victim going to the cross, but the one divinely dictating it is such a good reminder to us that we can indeed lean on the cross to understand how to live life and think through the the details of the choices that we make. All right, so that's, that's the first point. Jesus is no victim. He's not a king who is a victim. But the second thing is that he's a king who protects his own. So I don't know if you noticed this as we read through that story in the garden. Jesus then looks to protect his disciples after having said, hey, I'm the one you're looking for. I'm he, and they've fallen back. Jesus stops and he says, look, you found me. I'm the one you're looking for. Now let let my disciples go. And I love that. It's a beautiful moment. We've seen this again and again already with Jesus in the moment where he should be being cared for by his disciples, in the moment where they should sort of stand up for him, serve him, minister to and comfort him. Basically, since John 13, we've seen this. Jesus goes out of his way to be the one who comforts, who ministers to, who serves, who cares for his disciples. And even in this moment of great trouble, Jesus pauses to protect his own. Rather than asking them to defend him, he defends them. So church family, can I say this to you? And not just church family, let me say all who are listening, can I say this to you? When you belong to Jesus, you are never outside of his protection. When you belong to him, you're never outside of his protection. He is a king who protects his own. Now, let me anticipate a question there. So someone might ask, well, what about Christians who were killed for their faith or who die in natural disasters? Some have already died as a result of this virus and more will quite possibly. How did God protect them? I mean, how can you say God protects his own in light of those kinds of circumstances and situation? And here's our reply. Followers of Jesus, here's the reply we give to that. Jesus either protects our life here on earth so that we can stay and do more fruitful labor in his name or He protects us after our earthly death from eternal death in hell. Remember Philippians 1, 21 and 24, Paul here, and then in Romans 8, 36 and 37. Let me just read these two texts to you. Philippians 1, 21 and 24, 21 through 24, excuse me. Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, how is it that Paul can say, death is gain? How is it that he can say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better? He can only say that if he believes there is a protection for him waiting on the other side of death. That this truth that Jesus protects us, if not from earthly death, he certainly protects us from something much greater after death. Paul can only say that here if he believes that. And then look at Romans chapter eight, verse 36 and 37. Some of you uh, took me up on the challenge to memorize Romans eight. I hope you did. And, uh, or perhaps you're still working on that. Keep going, keep going, don't give up. But in verse 36 and 37, here's what Paul writes. He says, as it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But then he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's the same idea, Philippians chapter one, right? Romans chapter eight. How can he say that he's a conqueror through being slaughtered like a sheep? That's what he just said. All day long, we are regarded like sheep to be slaughtered. We're being killed for your sake. That's who we are as followers of yours as you were killed. So we are killed. And in that, his response is, oh, we actually have conquered when that takes place. Why can Paul say it? He can say it because what he knows is that conquering is what is happening after his death. Now, let me anticipate one more response there, all right, to that line of thought. Someone might say, well, that's letting Jesus off the hook, right? That's sort of having your cake and eating it too. You can't say he protects you when he clearly doesn't. You can't, that's just your way of getting out of it, Trent, is, is what some of you might say. You, you say, well, he protects you after death uh, if he doesn't protect you in life. But clearly he didn't protect you in life. So how do you, how can you really say he protects you. Well, one, that objection is only true if I'm wrong about what happens after death. I'm, and the only person that we know who's been through death and come out the other side is Jesus. And so if he's claimed to go through death and come back again, if you have someone else who has re been resurrected in their own power, then you have an argument to make about the fact that perhaps someone else should be turned to for protection on the other side of death. But if you don't, then perhaps he's the one we should look to in that moment. Now, in addition to that, let me also say, let me also say this. If he has protected us from an enemy that is a million times more dangerous than a mere virus that can do nothing more than take our physical life. If he's protected us from an enemy a million times more dangerous than that virus, then how could we consider that a lack of protection? So I just wanna flip that question upside down. If you say, well, if he doesn't protect our physical life, but only protects us after death from eternity in hell. If that's the only kind of protection he chooses to offer us, then how can we say he really protects us? And I would just flip that upside down and say, how can we say he hasn't protected us? How can I say, so think about it this way. Imagine that you go to the bank one day and an armed robber enters into that bank. And in the midst of that armed robbery, he points his gun at you. But just in the nick of time, a police officer shows up, pushes you out of the way and takes a bullet for you and is gravely wounded in the midst of that. To save you, he sacrificed himself. But after he pushed you, as you were running out the door, you twisted your ankle. And in twisting your ankle, after the fact, you turned to that police officer and you said, he didn't really protect me because I ended up getting hurt. The foolishness of that is pretty clear, right? I mean, Okay, so what we've just said is the thing you protected me from, which was a million times worse than a, than a twisted ankle, I'm gonna claim you didn't protect me because I still got a little wound. Your physical death is nothing more than a twisted ankle in comparison to eternal spiritual death on the other side of physical death. And if Jesus has protected us from that and chooses not to protect us in this life from a physical death, which eventually will come to all of us at some point, whether in old age or because of something that seems to cut our life short, any way you look at that, the greater protection has been given to us. How could we ever claim that he hasn't protected us? So let me say this to you, follower of Jesus, you are protected by your King. Have no fear. 
Not only did he look to protect you in this moment, in his moment of greatest trouble, his moment of greatest trouble was the way he protected you. I need you to see that. He didn't just look to protect you in your moment of greatest trouble. He used his moment of greatest trouble in order to protect you. All right, let's look further now. Let's look at the last part of the chapter. So John emphasizes one part of Jesus's trial that, no, that none of the other gospel writers emphasize. Everybody has it, but they tend to focus on the trials of Jesus before the high priest, before the Jewish religious leaders. John wants to focus on the trial before Pilate, who's the Roman judicial authority, uh, the governor of the area. And so let's look at that. There's a reason John does that. Here's why, because John is really writing to show you King Jesus so that you might believe. Like if you're not a follower of Jesus, John, you're never far from John's mind. He has you on his heart and on his mind with every stroke of his pen in this gospel. And he's just wanting to say to you, this is the kind of king that could be your king. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you read that too. He wants you to go, this is, this, remember the king that you have. Remember who he is. So we've seen so far that he's not a victim. He can never be a victim. And then secondly, we see, not only is he not a victim, but that he protects his own. Well, now we come to this try, this sort of interaction with Pilate. And John is emphasizing this because Pilate's really the least likely person to become a follower of Jesus. Now he doesn't, he doesn't become a follower of Jesus in this, but he wants us to see what it's like when Jesus interacts with the world. And so beginning in verse 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say this to you about me? Now Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now this is a, an interesting interaction. Let me give you a little bit of background here. So John is focused on this conversation as we said, and he wants us to see this dialogue about what, it, what is a king? That's essentially what he's talking with Pilate about. What is the nature of the kind of king that Jesus is? Now, the Jews' issue with Jesus is theological primarily. They wanna know, are you claiming to be the Messiah, the son of God? And that's really why they're upset. But here's the thing is they can't put Jesus to death without Roman authority uh, lending its authority to this process. And they know that the, Rome, the Romans don't care one iota about their theological debates or discussions. They don't care whether Jesus claims to be the son of God or the Messiah. That means nothing to them. That's a little dialogue among a people they don't care about. And so as they're having this dialogue, what they know is they need to they need to paint an accusation against Jesus that will cause Rome to take him as a serious threat. And so they've come to Pilate, they've come to Rome and they've said, Jesus is claiming to be a king. And they're not wrong because in Jewish theology, the Messiah is also a king, he's a messianic king. Although both for Jews and especially for Jesus, what it means to be a king is something very different than what it means to the Romans to be a king. And so that's why we see this interaction between Jesus and Pilate when he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asks, well, that depends on what you mean by king is essentially what Jesus is saying to him. Who, 
who framed that question for you? Jesus asks back to him. So I, I need to know what you mean by king before I can answer your question is essentially what Jesus is saying to him. And then Pilate says, am I a Jew? Just very dismissive, right? Am I a Jew? I don't care about your little categories and your little conversations. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, Pilate doesn't trust the motives of those who have handed Jesus over to him, nor does he trust Jesus. All Pilate is interested in is maintaining the peace for Rome. He's gonna do whatever is best for himself and his power and his authority to maintain the status quo. And so then Jesus answers in a way that tells us about the kind of king that Jesus is. And that's what I want you to see here, the kind of king that Jesus is claiming to be. He says this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. So when Jesus says that, he's doing a couple things. Number one, in one sense, he is telling Pilate he's not a threat to the way Pilate understands a claim to be a king, to be a threat. He, he's not going to whip up an army and attack Rome and try to overthrow their rule of, of Israel. And that's the first thing. So in some sense, it sets Pilate at ease. But at the same time, he's not saying that his kingdom has nothing to do with this world. So don't hear Jesus saying, my kingdom is not from this world, as Jesus saying, his kingdom is not gonna rule over this world. Because one of the things we know is that Jesus is going to bring his kingdom in fullness into the world and rule and reign over it as the creator of it, the redeemer of it, and the one who will rule over it forever. But when he says, my kingdom is not from this world or not of this world, he's talking about two things. He's saying, my kingdom, kind of king I am, the kingdom I rule over is different in both its authority and its ambition than the kingdoms that you're used to in the world, Pilate. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So when he talks about his authority, Jesus doesn't need his disciples to fight for him here and now because his kingdom is not established in the way normal kingdoms are. Normal kingdoms are established with armies and power and overthrowing groups of people and conquering certain pieces of land. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not like that. That's not how I establish my kingdom. My kingdom is not gonna be established by my people fighting for me. My kingdom will be established through my death. Now, what kind of act of power, what kind of king can establish a kingdom by dying? That's a different kind of kingdom and it's a different kind of king. And so Jesus is saying, when he says, my kingdom is not from this world, not of this world, he is saying that my authority comes from a different place. And it's not the kind of authority, by the way, the reason Jesus is never a victim as a king is because his authority comes from heaven, not from earth. And when you say my kingdom is not of this earth, he's saying my authority comes from a place that is much higher and bigger than this place. Therefore, my kingdom is never under assault. We serve a king whose kingdom cannot be overthrown. It can never be taken over. It's never under threat. Jesus's power is never under threat. And because it's never under threat, he doesn't have to have servants who fight to maintain that power. He doesn't have to have servants who struggle and strive to maintain his kingdom because his power cannot be assailed. It can't be questioned and it can't be conquered. But the second thing he's saying when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he says the, he's, he's saying essentially, not only is my authority of a different type and, and it comes from a different place, my ambitions for my kingdom are of a different type. Earthly kingdoms essentially exist to perpetuate themselves. They, they want to maintain themselves. And they may have some altruistic ideas about things they want to do in the world, but essentially kingdoms try to keep themselves as kingdoms. That's what they do. That's the ambition is to stay in power. And Jesus's ambition is something very different. 
Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not about the maintenance of power. My kingdom is about reconciling people to God, which is why I'm going to go to the cross because it's what my ultimate aim is here. I'm a different kind of king, Pilate. Don't you see? Now, the ambition of Jesus' kingdom, which comes from heaven ultimately, is derived from that place. What is it? Well, he gives us, he explains it to us. And he says, I have come for this purpose I was born. And what does he say? To bear witness to the truth. To bear witness to the truth. Now, Pilate's incredibly dismissive of that. Did you catch the question at the end? What is truth? What Pilate is saying there is truth doesn't matter to me as much as power. I care about the status quo. I'm going to treat you in the most expedient way possible for myself. Whatever is helpful to me, that's what I'm going to do with you. Truth doesn't matter. But Jesus is saying, my kingdom is founded on the idea of truth. Now, when Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth, he has in mind a very specific truth. And this is what he means, church. The truth about who God is in his holiness and purity and righteousness as our creator who we are as people who have rebelled against him and about God's desire to redeem us back to himself. That's what Jesus has in mind. So I've come to bear witness to the truth. Because of that, he doesn't just bear witness with his words. It's the cross itself that is the great truth bearing witness of his life. It's that action that bears witness. Now, this is why Jesus is a king who rather than conquer us with power, seeks to redeem us with sacrificial love. The cross is his great act of bearing witness to the truth, not just words, but action. Now, let me say this. So Jesus is saying, my authority is different than a typical kingdom. My ambition is different than a typical kingdom. My ambition is to bear witness to the truth. I want you to see it. So what does that mean for us? And we'll conclude with this. For those of you who are his followers, for those of you who believe, it means that your king still bears witness to the truth to you daily. So listen to him. When you're afraid, when you're scared, when you don't know what to do, listen. Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth. And that's not just to say generally about God and generally about humankind and generally about his purposes in the world to redeem people, but to continue to, to bear witness to that truth to you and I today and tomorrow and the next day. He comes to speak to you. So listen to him. He's speaking through his cross and he's speaking through his spirit. He testifies to you daily, if you will listen, that he has died and risen and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again and that he loves you and that nothing can separate you from his love and that he sent you to bear witness in his name and the gospel to which you bear witness will never kneel and it will never faint before the world. Hear your king, he's a truth teller. Your king is a truth teller. For those of you who don't believe, could I just invite you to examine Pilate's response to Jesus and to think about doing the opposite. And Pilate dismisses Jesus as inconsequential. He's just, he's expedient in his response. He just thinks, well, what's gonna be the most expedient thing for me to do? And we'll see more of this next week when we, when we come to the cross and Pilate's final decision to put Jesus there. But are you going to dismiss him as Pilate did? You see, for him, for Pilate, the love of power, the love of the status quo was more important than the truth. And I would just encourage you not to make that mistake. One thing that might be helpful is to recognize that when you reject the idea of truth and what Jesus is claiming to be the truth, you're not just rejecting a concept. You're rejecting him and his personhood and who he's claimed to be. Don't make that mistake. The beauty of this text is that 
Essentially, Jesus, in his interview with Pilate, he's on trial, but he sort of flips the script and he begins to control the conversation so that he's got Pilate answering questions that he's asking. And in that, what I think you need to see is that he's making an invitation to Pilate. Pilate rejects the invitation, but he would make the same invitation to you that he makes to Pilate. He's come to bear witness to the truth. Will you believe him? Hear that invitation. It's made for you by a good king who's a truth teller. All right, let me invite the band to come. We're gonna close our time in worship together with a song. And as they're coming, let me say this. Church family, come to Jesus the King in this time of trouble. He is who you need to still your troubled soul, far better than the best of earthly leaders, far better than all the best leaders in this world is our King Jesus, who is no victim, who speaks the truth to us, who protects his own. You can look to him in times of trouble. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, even as we come now to sing your praises, I pray that your word would just be present in our minds, in our hearts. I pray that we would see you on trial and see that you are still king, not a victim. And in that we take great confidence. You have power upon power and love upon love. We pray for my church family today in their homes and places where they're listening to this, that they would receive your love, walk in it, be refreshed by it, be renewed in it. They'd remember it. They would hear your spirit speaking to them as you speak truth again and again, day by day. So we love you. Would you receive our praises now? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.